I know we've got some little ones in here that are in here for the first time. Where's Christy? Is she in here? Oh, yeah. And Daniel. Hey, buddy. Four years old. We've got some other new kids in here, maybe for the first time. We're going to pray for you and for your mommy and daddy. Yeah. I'd like for us also to pray for the Living Word Church and for Scott McManus' family. Scott was killed in a motorcycle accident. He's the pastor of Living Word Church. And uh, Rhonda was telling me that his wife has uh, dealt with cancer also. So there's, um, there is a uh, need there and brothers and sisters in Christ that we want to lift up that church family and the McManus family. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, this morning we want to lift up this family, both the church family of Living Word uh, Church and also the McManus family. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in this death somehow. And um, in the aftermath, of, as people are dealing with grief and sorrow, that they will trust in you in a deeper, richer way. We pray that the gospel will be furthered somehow and that you'll be um, adored more, clung to more desperately. Um, I pray for this church body, Lord, that they will uh, just trust you and trust your timing, that uh, you are not caught unawares and that you know exactly our days and um, that you have a plan here somewhere. And I pray that they'll be looking for it. Lord, I pray for whoever is taking leadership of the, uh, the body right now. I pray that he is surrounded or that Scott was surrounded by other leaders that uh, have been developed that can step into the pulpit and step in uh, the shepherding role, and I pray that they will lead that people to a deeper adoration of you and a deeper trust in you. Lord, I also pray for the little ones in this sanctuary this morning. Um, Lord, I pray that you will just tune all of us in from the four-year-olds to the uh, much more seasoned. Uh, just pray that you will just captivate us with uh, truths that impact us. I pray right now that Families will see in this morning, in this message, and even in the, um, the simplicity of the truths that are presented, the opportunity for us to engage this between Sundays in living rooms and over dinner tables. And I pray that we'll see not only opportunity, but we'll have ownership in that. Lord, we love you so much. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Big day. Having our four-year-old in here, I'm nervous. I'm having a tough time engaging. Turn to John chapter 12, because our kids are supposed to be perfect. You know, I hope you know that. <laughs> Preacher's kids. <laughs> John chapter 12, <clears throat> we're going to begin in verse 24. This is a passage of Scripture that we looked at last week. And we, last Sunday was our mobile Sunday. We do that on the last Sunday of the month where we pick up and go to another place in our community and just worship out loud in another place. And we're intentional about trying to connect to those neighborhoods during that, that, that uh, last Sunday of the month. And uh, there's, we engaged this passage last week. And I believe in the primary teaching of the passage really engaged it pretty thoroughly. Uh, this Sunday, or we're going to do something a little bit different. I'll explain what that is first. But let me begin with the passage. Or I will, I'll explain what that is in a minute. Let me begin with the passage first. John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, last week, we recognized the primary teaching of this passage is that Jesus is speaking of himself. He's illustrating what he's about to do. He's on his way to the cross within a few days. This is probably Sunday. He's going to be on the cross on Friday. He's explaining to his disciples and preparing them, what you're about to see is you're about to see a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die. But the result of this is that you're going to see much fruit. He's also explaining to them, not only that he's talking about himself, that he's also talking about them. And he's also talking about us. That if we're to follow him, then we're to follow him to the cross. And we're to die also. And that we're, be, we're to be life in this world haters. And that we are to love him more than we love our own life. And it was a pretty robust call, a pretty robust picture this last week. But what we realize is that the product of his death, if we're believing and we're dying, is us. So we're two grains of wheat also. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is something that I want to admit to you that I've had a really hard time with this week. I'll tell you why I've had a hard time with it. Because this is a devotional. And I'm not a devotional preacher. I'm a preacher, and I want to expose the passage. But this is a devotional. And not for lack of time that we're ending up with a devotional this morning, because I've had ample time this week. I've bathed in it. I've been neck deep in this Word. But here, even yesterday, I'm looking at this going, this is just a devotional. But then I realized that God wanted to teach two things this morning. First, a devotional is good. There's nothing wrong with a devotional. But the second thing is, we're going to be equipping shepherds. And when I say shepherds, let me describe who that is. Heads of household, fathers, uh, ideally, mothers that may be single moms or may be functionally single because dad really doesn't care a thing in the world about the Lord or the Word. But this is ideally for shepherds to equip you in what you can, and not just can, but what you should do between Sundays. Really, this morning, I'm more daddy and husband than I am preacher. Okay, it may sound like a preacher, and I got this big piece of wood up here. I thought about bringing my living room chair in here, and just because this is this ought to feel like a living room this morning. And dads, our moms, our heads of household, are really all of us can envision this and begin to imagine what this would be like. What we're about to engage this morning is what the sort of things we can engage between Sundays. Something's got to happen apart from Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And this that we're about to engage is an example. So not only are we going to eat this, we're going to equip shepherds with what they can and should do. Okay, so let's climb into this. I've been wrestling with this question the last few weeks. As I've been studying this passage about a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying, that that's a picture of Christ, it illustrates Christ, but then also realizing that it illustrates us too, that if we're following Him, we die also. I've been asking myself this question from the point of view of a husband and a daddy and a shepherd, cross point. What happens if the grain of wheat, meaning the product of the ministry, his ministry, you and me, we're a bunch of grains of wheat, you've got to climb into this illustration. What happens if the grain of wheat doesn't fall to the earth and die? 
Okay, what are the consequences or what's the character of really uncooperative grain? I want to know what that looks like because I don't want to be that. And I don't want my family to be that. And I don't want our church family to be that. So it's a worthwhile question. Realize it's a secondary meaning of the passage, but it still has gravity. Okay, so let's climb into it. Let's look at the passage. I'm going to offer you five things that any dad can glean from this passage. You know, I got to tell you, it bums me out when I see a husband and wife walking into the church building and I see a wife carrying a big old fat Bible with notes pouring out of it, with pens sticking behind her ear. That didn't work well. I mean, with, it's all marked up and highlighted, and Dad just kind of said, okay, where do we sit? I'm, I'm hungry for lunch. I mean, really, what I'm talking about is something that any dad should be able to do. And any dad really must do. I want you to take some ownership of this. Dads, husbands, our functional um, heads of household. Take some ownership of what you're about to see. Okay, five things from this passage to answer the question, what happens to an unproductive grain of wheat or an uncooperative grain of wheat that doesn't fall to the ground and die? Okay, here's the first thing in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Okay, that's the first thing. If you just take the time beyond last Sunday when we unpacked the primary meaning of the passage and gnawed on this, then maybe Monday morning you might be sitting around and you go, huh, well, that's kind of funny. If a grain of wheat doesn't fall to the ground and die, it just remains pure D alone. Now, let's think about that for a minute. If it doesn't find some soil, it doesn't matter how beautiful that grain of wheat is. It doesn't matter how much you polish it, how shiny it is. It doesn't matter how much meat and marrow are in that grain of wheat. It's hard to imagine a really fat, plump grain of wheat. But it doesn't matter how pretty it is. If it doesn't die, it amounts to nothing. It doesn't bear any fruit because it's got to die. That's the way God has made it. That grain of wheat could go to counseling. A grain of wheat... And that's not diminishing counseling. I'm just saying the grain of wheat could go to counseling. The grain of wheat could join like a self-help chat group. The grain of wheat could read some self-help books. But unless that grain of wheat dies, he's not going to bear fruit. And he's going to be alone. Okay, so that's the first point. That we could have gotten at home. You don't have to go to seminary to get that. There's no Greek involved in that. (laughs) Some people get intimidated. You know Greek. That's why you're the only one that can really do this. Baloney. There's no Greek or high-speed exegesis involved in that. You're just asking questions and just making notes. Okay, there's the first one. If I don't die, I remain alone. Okay, here's the second one. Undying grain, uncooperative grain, grains of wheat that are unwilling to fall to the ground and die, love their own lives more than Christ. Let's say it for what it is. Let's not mince words. Let's look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So really what we're talking about in an undying grain of wheat, in a grain of wheat that's unwilling to fall to the ground and die, we're talking about a grain of wheat that loves its own life more than it loves Christ. The third thing, uncooperative, undying, life-loving grain loses its own life or whatever semblance of life it thinks it has. That grain of wheat that just kind of wants to levitate and says, no, I'm not getting in that old nasty dirt. I'm not going to die. I'm going to self-preserve and self-protect, and I'm going to be self-absorbed. 
that grain of wheat loses what life it thinks it has. And it doesn't get the upgrade to eternal life either. Let's look at the passage, verse 25 again. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for the upgrade. That's the BIV, Ben International Version, to eternal life. Okay? Strangely enough, the grain that wants so desperately to self-protect and self-preserve loses the very life he's so desperately trying to protect and preserve. The fourth thing, uncooperative grain, grain that's unwilling to die, that's unwilling to follow the earth and die, does not die daily and is not serving the Lord. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Uncooperative grains of wheat, as us, products of his ministry, if we don't die daily, we're not serving him. Hear that again. If we're not dying daily, we're not serving him. God is served The Lord is served in our daily death. And let me break it to you. Church attendance is not daily death. You could be here every time the doors are open and not be dying daily. I know it's hard to get to church sometimes on Sunday morning, especially when you got a row of kids. The worst fights I've ever seen in our home broke out on Sunday morning. It's crazy how hard it can be to get to church on Sunday morning. But that's not daily death. That's not daily death. You become a sort of living sacrifice when you die daily in Romans chapter 12. And you smell like Christ. You're a sweet aroma of Christ to God when you die daily. That's what serves the Lord. Uncooperative, undying, unwilling seed does not die daily and it does not serve the Lord. Here's the fifth thing. Uncooperative, undying wheat grain will not be honored by the Father. Period. It's right there in that verse. He doesn't say seed that means well. Seed that levitates and looks at that dirt and says, you know, that's a good, I ought to die. And, you know, really kind of in my heart, sincerely, I think I, I would like to, but I'm not going to. The seed that is not dying to self and to the world will not be honored and remembered by the Lord. You can't expect to be honored and remembered and saved by the Father if you have not honored, and I hear honor, not dabble. Man, a lot of us dabble in Jesus. Yeah, I'll give Jesus a little space. I'll give church a little space. I'm talking about honoring, remembering, and following the Son even to death. <laughs> you can't expect to be honored and remembered by the Father if you're not honoring and following and remembering The Son, even unto death. Now, those five things I've shared with you are the five things that any sort of man or woman or young people, young person could glean from just chewing on the passage from last Sunday. That's all you got to do. It's just got to matter. You got to pull it out. You got to pull out your little journal. You got to write down scribble notes. You got to call your friends. You got to talk to your other family members. Hey, here's what I'm seeing. What do you think? Think about that's five things. Fathers or shepherds or functional shepherds, you could have five devotionals in your home on Sunday morning or on week mornings on those five things. Hey, Monday morning, kids, y'all sit down. Here's what I'm seeing in the Word. Here's what we need to talk about. Our family will be quite lonely if we don't die as a family because there will be no fruit to the ministry of our family. Think about that. 
an opportunity to escort and import this into your home to where it violates your home, to where it invades your home, to where it penetrates your home. If you don't do this, what are we doing here? I'm supposed to be equipping you for something, people of God. Fathers, I'm supposed to be equipping you for something. That's what the gift, that, the gift that's given to the church are the teachers and the preachers and the evangelists and the prophets. The prophets are gone. The evangelists are preaching in the tents. I'm the pastor teacher, and I'm supposed to be equipping you for something. And that's what I'm equipping you for. Just take five things and sit down with your family. Go ahead and feel feeble, feel inadequate, and do it anyway. And watch what God does with that in your family where he raises up a little people within a people. Now, three things that I've taken beyond that devotional level five thoughts. Three things that I want y'all to see this morning as a people of God. Here's the first thing. That loneliness, hopelessness, emptiness, and meaninglessness in the life of the professing Christian can come from your avoiding the ground. I'm not saying it will every time. There's certain I've been reading a book about depression because I want to understand depression. It's kind of the malady of our age, and I want to understand it. I want to be good counsel and wise counsel for someone, who, someone who's dealing with depression. And I realize in all cases, it's not necessarily a spiritual thing. It can be like blindness. It'd be like counseling somebody who's blind and saying, man, you better quit sinning. He's blind. Who sinned, this man or his father? Well, nobody sinned. He's, he's blind so I can be glorified. That's what Jesus said about the blind man in John chapter 9. And the same may be true about extreme clinical depression. So I don't want to dismiss all those things. But I want to say in the life of the believer, when you hit the lows, those daily and weekly lows, it may be because you're so self-absorbed and you're so levitating, you're not dying. You're self-protecting. You're guarding everything that you are and everything that you think you want to be. I, I, I recognize this place because I visit there sometimes. And when I visit there, that's what I find. I find self-absorption. Self-protection and self-centeredness. And the last thing on my mind is dying and bearing fruit. And that's a miserable, lonely place to be. The ideal, though, is a grain of wheat was made to die and bear fruit, and so were we as products of His dying, that we were made to die and bear fruit. And when we're not doing that, You feel depressed, you feel lonely, you feel empty? No, duh. You're not doing what you were made to do. I want to help you visualize how close this may hit to home. I've been troubled in the last four years of ministry at the disconnect between what happens here and what happens at home. Not only for myself, but also for our people. It's difficult because we've been conditioned to this mindset that we go to church. We go get our church on. I mean, I don't let my kids say that. Don't say you're going to church. You are the church. Don't use that phrase. And I've said this in this setting before, too, because we're so conditioned to this place we go and this thing that we do that church is reduced to a day of the week and a place in town. So what happens here does not invade between Sundays. Let me help you visualize the gravity of what I'm talking about here, about this self-absorption creeping into that mindset. If you view what I'm doing right now in preaching, if you view what your teacher does in the last hour 
or maybe folks that are in Bible study right now, or what your kids are part of, as for you and you only, then you're not falling to the ground and dying. You need to realize, and I said this just a moment ago, you're being equipped for something. And you're not being equipped just to eat more food. You're not being equipped just to be a shinier, more beautiful seed. You're equipped to die. And that death is a daily death where then you take this weekly equipment and you go do something with it. If you view what I'm doing right here as just for you, then what I'm doing right here is terminal. It's terminal. The gospel in this ministry of Ben McGraw in this preaching event, the gospel in this ministry of Crosspoint in this engagement of this people is terminal because it ends with you and it ends at about 12.15. It's for more than you. Fathers should be hearing what's happening here week by week as equipping you for something, as equipping you to engage your kids, to be a steward with their little souls. It's equipping you to die daily to your wife and to die for her. Wives, you should be hearing what you're hearing each week as something that's equipping you to minister to your husband and minister to your, ki- your kids, minister to your family, minister to your neighbors. And then it's not terminal. And you'll die in those ministries. Trust me. But the cool thing is, is when you die in those ministries, it'll bear fruit. And that's what we're supposed to do as fruit of his ministry. So not just fathers and mothers, but also workers, wherever you work. You should view what's happening here on Sunday morning. As you're hearing a message, you should be thinking, who's behind me? Not physically right now. But who's connected to me that what I'm hearing right now, I need to then minister to them? What am I hearing right now and seeing right now that I then need to go engage someone else with? If you're not thinking about someone else, it's terminal with you. It ends with you. Do you see the urgency in that? And do you see that we may be levitating and not even know it? We may be looking at the soil saying, that's a great idea. I'll see you next Sunday morning at 1045. And not finding purchase in that dark, rich, wet soil. And not dying in taking this ministry on then to someone else. There's a sort of wonderful death. I must say that again. There's a sort of wonderful death in ministering to another. When you feel and know that you are inadequate and insufficient. You are. I promise you, you are. That's where I live. I know that place so well. Inadequacy, insufficiency, feebleness. Ask Christy. She hears it every day. I'm feeble. But he's not looking for the excellent. He's not looking for the perfect. He's not looking for the shiny. He's looking for the little old dirty available seed that says, I'll find purchase. I'll open my mouth at L3. I'll open my mouth in my neighborhood. I'll open my mouth at home in my living room with my family, although I feel terribly feeble. I'll trust you. And when you do that, there's a wonderful death in that where you see a big old huge awesome God. And you see a little old bit of you. And then you're more dependent on Him and your faith is bigger and you're grown through that. I want you to know and recognize that you are the fruit of someone else's ministry. 
I'm going to take that word ministry out, and I'm going to insert what the, what the image here. You are the fruit of someone else's death. Have you ever thought, who's going to be the fruit of my death? Or who is the fruit of my death? Who is being grown right now because I'm dying daily? For the people of God, for the product of His ministry, that's not optional. We are dying daily, or we're supposed to be. Now, the second thing that I want you to see is that the harder that you fight for life and avoid the ground, the harder that you try and stay away from that dirt and away from death, the less life you actually have. I'm thinking about what I usually see, not only in myself and what I see in others, the pursuits of life. What I see in the pursuits of life are typically riches, comfort, and happiness. The pursuit of all those things are oftentimes the things that draw us away from the things that matter. Let me put perspective in, let me give you a little bit of perspective of God's view on riches. Turn to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. This is a parable that Christ shared about the, really how riches kind of fit in the big picture. If you're unwilling to die, if you're kind of stiff-arming death and kind of hovering above that dirty ground and saying, I really don't want to die daily because you're so zealously pursuing life, it might be because of riches. And this will put riches into perspective. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's the American dream right there. Isn't it? <laughs> Feasting sumptuously every day. The life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's it. That's good. This guy embodied what it means to be a true American, man. Come on. A rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, we don't all wear purple. But fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's another word for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried in, and in Hades, being in, that's another word for hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, he's looking over into heaven, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, listen what he said. He says, child, he says, great American who lived out the American dream in fine linen and purple, sumptuously in the pursuit of happiness. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. That's what Christ thinks of the fancy and the fine and the rich and the comfortable he says, hey man, you have spent your fine things. Look back at Luke, Luke chapter 6. It's another glimpse of it. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. That word for consolation is comfort. If you have a New American Standard, it says comfort. In full. As if there's a certain amount of comfort that you're going to get. And rich boy, you got it all here. Enjoy it. 
Because you're not going to have it later is essentially what he's saying there. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. When I take those kind of passages, and and if you take them literally, which is the way we're supposed to take them, I mean, we could kind of hypothetically treat them, you know, or symbolically. If we treat them literally, then I'm going, "Mm, comfort's a little bit overrated compared to eternity in hell. I think I will take passing on the pursuit of comfort now. Does it mean that you need to throw all your nice couches out in the yard? Does it mean you need to take your mattresses out in the yard and you got to sleep on the floor? No. But if your pursuit in life is about comfort and riches, woe to you. Woe to you. You're levitating above the ground saying, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live for riches and comfort instead. And you have woe in store. There's kind of been a movement in the Christian faith that, I, that I've heard recently. I've heard this from different places. The, the mindset from Christians that says, you know, I, I want to be rich. and I want, I'm asking the Lord to bless me so I have a lot of money so I can give a lot back to the Lord. Have you heard that from people? Yeah, I want to be blessed so I can give a lot back to him. I've got a theory about that. Daniel, who's actually doing a pretty good job this morning, loves gum. He could just go through a plenty pack in a day. So we we have to kind of monitor it and ration it. And we'll keep it in the kitchen, okay, a plenty pack of that extra gum. And Daniel will come in there. And at first we thought, man, Daniel's so generous because he'd come in and say, Daddy, can I have a piece of gum to give to Luke? Like, well, yeah, that's a good, cool. Can I have a piece of gum to give to, to Evan? Daddy, do you want a piece of gum? Let me get you a piece of gum, really. And then one for Mommy. And what we found that Daniel was doing, he's like, one for you and two for me. That's what Daniel was about. It was not selflessness. He was thinking like most of us when we say, we want to be rich so we can give a bunch back to the Lord. One for you, God, and two for me. The harder you try to pursue these sort of things, riches and comfort, the less you will actually have. The other thing is the pursuit of happiness. You should know that God did not write the Declaration of Independence. The unalienable or inalienable rights, that word means the same thing, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, didn't come from the Bible. You need to know that. That might be an American thing, man. That's weird. We're owed that by Googly. It's not in here. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want to show you what God thinks about happiness. Turn to Jonah. The book of Jonah. It's on page 775 of your pew Bible, or if you have an ESV. I must admit that I don't go to Jonah often. It's one of the stories that, you know, it's two pages long, and you're kind of like, I think I got that story already. But just like any other... (laughs) passage of scripture in the Bible, it just continues to speak and just shows you that you can't get it, uh, you can't put a check in the block, I already got that, that this book is alive. Let me show you what God thinks of happiness. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was a bad place. The Ninevites had this reputation for just the worst brutality you've ever imagined toward humanity. And God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach to them. And Jonah's like, absolutely not. Jonah ran the other way. He runs to Tarshish. He gets on a boat. And, you know, they have the, the uh, storm on the seas. And Jonah ends up in the water. He's swallowed by a whale. A couple days later, the whale burps. Jonah's laying land on the seashore. And he's like, well, I reckon I better go to Nineveh. 
So he heads off to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh and, and he preaches. And sure enough, God has already been working in Nineveh. He's already been working on the hearts of the Ninevites. And jo- Jonah goes and preaches. And these guys repent, man, all over the place. Even the king puts on sackcloth. And li- listen to what Jonah said, Jonah's attitude in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's chapped about it. Man, these guys shouldn't deserve to be saved. Essentially, they were gonna, the whole Nineveh was going to be destroyed. And Jonah's thinking they ought to be destroyed because they were a wicked bunch. And then in verse 5, And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. A booth is kind of like a little lean-to, kind of a little tent, you know. He's kind of hanging out underneath this booth, and, and he's just watching Nineveh. He's hoping that the Lord will end up, he'll destroy Nineveh. He sat under in the shade till, till he should see what, the, what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Man, that sounds like God. God wants us to be happy, right? Huh? He made a plant come up over Jonah. Another version said it was a gourd. <laughs> it's like this big gourd plant. Just all, overnight, whoop, he appointed it. Okay, you grow up over Jonah. The plant says, okay, and he grows up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from discomfort. I I like that God. That's cool. Okay, that's a God that's kind of focused on me and my happiness. He wants me to live out the American dream. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Man, he's happy, boy. He's enjoying that gourd plant and that shade. He's ready for the fireworks. Bring it on, God. Let's just watch none of it go up in flames. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Oh, man. So God is not all about our happiness then after all. In fact, he appointed a worm to eat up the gourd plant. He appointed an east wind to just burn up Jonah. I wonder who's on fire now. And then he says, then Jonah says, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also as much cattle? The point here being is that God cares less about our happiness and more about his own will being accomplished. And his own will in there was for Nineveh, whether Joni was happy or not. He's not about our happiness. He's about his own design and his own plan and his own glory and ultimately his own happiness. And we may be an expense in that. Oddly enough, the least happy are the uncooperative, levitating, undying seed. You look a lot like Jonah sitting around, spitting mad underneath a gourd tree. That's the least happy. Daniel is uh, four. I didn't even know he was going to be in here this morning. I'm telling a couple stories about him. I hope he's okay with that. Daniel's learned how to swim. He doesn't quite know completely how to swim yet. He's kind of got the the floaties on and things like that. He's a lot braver now than he used to be. But I've had this vision of Daniel going over to a friend's house and drowning in their pool. If you're a parent, I bet you've had that vision too. I think that's a God-given vision to where we'll tend to our kids and be attentive to them and make sure they don't, that doesn't happen. But I've had this vision of Daniel falling in somebody else's pool and drowning in water that's just two or three inches over his head. 
And I've thought about that illustration because the reason he could drown in water two or three inches over his head is because what would you do? You're fighting for the top of the water and you're fighting so hard for your pursuits and your pleasures and your breath of air. Give me, give me, give me. But you don't realize that the bottom of the, the pool is just a couple of inches underneath you if you'll just surrender and submit to it. And that's the way we are so often. We're fighting so much for our happiness and for what we think matters and the riches and the comfort. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And we're drowning And if we would just submit and surrender to that water, we'd find purchase that we didn't even know was down there. But we've got to drown to do that. We've got to surrender to it before we realize that God has been there all along. And God has a better plan than fighting for that stinking breath of air. He's got a better plan, and that's the plan that we need to pursue. Ironically enough, the harder you fight for your life and your passions and your pursuits and your happiness, the less life you've got. The last couple of Sundays, between last Sunday and this Sunday, I realized that I've not told you yet how to die. Not really. I mean, last Sunday kind of went that direction. But I haven't given you like three steps to happy dying. You know, self-help plan, a three-step plan to dying for Christ. And I think it's because we're all in different places. We all have different things that are alive that need to die. Some of y'all may have been like, man, I don't really care a thing in the world about riches. I just want to pay my basic bills. I don't want to get rich. But the guy next to you might be saying, yeah, I really do want to get rich. That's what I'm about. We have different things that are living and different things that need to die. So if I were to give you three or four steps to dying, it wouldn't apply to everybody. So what I'd rather do is just set up this call and this presentation that we are supposed to die and that you'll seek the Lord's face, you'll read this book, you'll talk with each other and say, hey, what needs to die? And how can we seek the Lord's face in helping in Him essentially murdering what needs to die in us? But I was thinking about the character of it. The character of daily dying. Although I haven't told you how to die daily, the character of daily dying is a lot like a gardener. On Wednesday nights, we've been teaching in Genesis. We just finished up the first week. And one of the things coming up from Genesis is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the Lord took the man, this is man he just made, Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God made man in the beginning as a gardener. And I thought, isn't that appropriate? Because the believer, the one who is the fruit of his ministry, the seed, you and me, hopefully, the grain of wheat, in our daily dying, it's a lot like gardening. You venture off and you begin in it, and then you've got to tend to it. For gardening, for it to be profitable at all, it's got to have certain characteristics. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be faithful. It's got to be committed. It's got to have regularity. Show me a gardener that's irregular about tending to his garden, and I'll show you a jungle. But show me a gardener that's regular, that's committed, that is patient, and that has a vision for the end result. That's what daily dying looks like. And the reality is every day that we die, we've got things fighting back like weeds, and fungus, and bugs, and that that's part of the work. And that's what we were made for. And that daily dying is a venture. 
It's not something you just accomplish. It's a way of life. You can't get it done in four happy steps. Because then there's tomorrow. And you've got to die again. And you'll have to die to ten different things. It's a lot like gardening. You can die today and put your family before you. And you can serve your workmates and your friends. But the only hope of fruit in any of those settings is consistency, commitment, regularity, patience, and vision. Daily seed like dying is more a way of life than an action. I have a few promises for you to end the message this morning. Don't, don't get your gear together just yet. Listen to these promises. I can make these promises based on this passage. Here's the first promise. You'll not experience abiding joy. I want that, don't you? You'll not experience abiding joy apart from your daily death to self and to the world. You'll not experience it. That's a promise. You'll never experience a wonderful marriage apart from your daily death, men, women. You'll not experience a wonderful marriage apart from your daily death in getting your way and in getting what you think you're owed. Those things have got to die before you will ever experience a wonderful marriage. You'll not experience a wonderful, rich relationship with your children apart from your death and raising them. Your death. Dads, when you open up your Bible and you feel feeble, you're like, man, I know he preached on Sunday morning. I kind of got like one thing. Talk about that one thing. That's your daily death. Step out in that daily death and you'll experience a wonderful outcome in your family. You'll not experience the joy of new life apart from your time and your pursuits and your personal passions. Dying. Dying. You'll not experience the rich fruit of a legacy that outlives you apart from your falling to the ground and dying for something that lasts and something that matters. Lastly, if your pursuit in life is your own pleasure, your own satisfaction, your own happiness, ironically enough, you'll never find any in that. That's a promise. Let me pray. Lord, I pray in two directions this morning. First of all, I pray for the truth that's been exposed, that the people of God will recognize that our emptiness and loneliness and hopelessness and discouragement and frustration and fruitlessness is a result of not daily dying. pray that you'll give us the resolve of a gardener that is committed, that's faithful, that's regular, that's tending to our garden, and that's looking to you for sunshine and rain and dependent on you and has a vision of the end result. Or the other direction I'm praying right now is I'm praying for fathers and functional shepherds in each family. I'm praying for men to man up, to grab their Bibles and to scrawl all over it, to underline passages and to eat passages and to pull out another journal or a piece of paper and to ask questions and to make notes because we have stewardship and responsibility and ownership of our families. 
Lord, I pray for men that will step out in this frightening place that men will die and find purchase in soil. And I pray that as a result of that, actually, I thank you that as a result of that, that they'll bear much fruit. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.